Good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks so much for joining us again. Uh, thank you. Those of you who join us here, those of you who are joining us online. I was talking to somebody yesterday who told me that they um, are uh, enjoying the series, they, this current series we're in. This is, we called it Turning Points. This is week 10. We're almost finished with the back part of the book of 2 Kings in the Old Testament. And uh, they said, I haven't come back to church live in person yet, but, um, you know, I was listening early in the summer, and then uh, I, think she, I think she said yesterday or sometime this week, she said, I binge-watched the last uh, several weeks. And, I, you know, my first response was, uh, I, I felt flattered. B, I thought, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm hardly competition for the latest Netflix series. Um, and then I, I was reminded of, uh, I thought about her, her faithfulness. And you can make an argument that that's kind of the point. That our, our, our job, our goal, is to do what we can to try to be faithful. I mean, God is in charge of the big stuff. We, our job is to, to be faithful uh, in the little things. And um, I really appreciate those of you who have taken the time and the energy and the effort to begin to come back live and to try to uh, just take steps in your life to be faithful. Uh, I want to reiterate, um, I know you've thought this in your own head, it's one of the reasons that you're here, but I just want to reiterate, over the long term, it pays off. Our our faithfulness uh, keeps us connected to God it keeps us on point. It keeps us in the center of what he wants for us. I remember years ago when I was in seminary, I was a young guy, and I'd just gone to seminary. This was in 1890. And uh, I decided that, I was 25, and I decided that I wanted to um, uh, work out very, very consistently. I never had uh, lifted weights very consistently, and you know, I don't exactly have a uh, bodybuilder's body, so I thought, seminary is safe. I can, I can lift weights uh, for, I didn't know what I was doing, but I, I can go in and figure it out, and I can lift weights, and this is a bunch of weak seminarians like me. There won't be anything intimidating, so I kid you not, seminary, it was, again, seminary, so the weight room was not, not very sophisticated, a little small, sweaty room. They had a bunch of weights, but it, it wasn't very nice. I walk in, first day there, and the former Mr. Florida was in there lifting weights. I'm not kidding. And he uh, had the perfect human male body. So immediately, my first response is walk in, walk right back out. I don't want to have anything to do with Mr. Florida. But I said, no, I'm going to do this. So I go in, he's super nice, comes over and introduces himself to me and began to teach me how to lift weights. It was awesome. So for about three weeks, this guy was my uh, workout buddy, teaching me how to lift weights and uh, punishing me. I mean, we had an awful relationship. I hated him by the end of the three weeks. Uh, He spotted me in, you know, every exercise, constantly pushing me. And it was pointless. You know, what can you do uh, with this body? I kept telling myself, but every day, almost every day, I would drag myself into the weight room so Mr. Florida could beat me up. And about a month in, I started noticing myself in the mirror thinking, you know, not bad. About three months in, 
uh, I thought, I'm liking this. There was never a day, not once, in that three-month period where I thought, yeah, I can't wait to go in and lift weights and have Mr. Florida yell at me. But the net effect, oh, I felt, I felt really good physically. I felt really good physically. Of course, I was 25 years old, but I felt better than I had at any other point and have since. I also looked pretty good. Faithfulness over the long term, it's kind of the point. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you for the acts of faithfulness represented this morning and people who have tuned in and people who will tune in this week and for the people who are here. And I'm not, uh, you know, Lord, I, I don't want to pray for your blessing because there is a, faithfulness has its own blessing and then it's just that you've designed the, the world so that our faithfulness comes with blessing. I, and I'm reminded of when we say, bless this food to nourish us, and that's food's job. It does that. Uh, I guess bless our faithfulness to nourish us. And speak to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, I want to return to a question that we've, been all, all, we've all been asking this past year. What in the world should we make of the COVID-19 mess that we've been experiencing experiencing and we are experiencing again i suspect most of us have thought about this repeatedly this year what do we do with this first of all we've thought about it just at an everyday level literally uh what's going on should we wear a mask or should we not should we get vaccinated how free can i be today where can i go uh, then we've also been forced to ask from a longer-term perspective, uh, what do we do with our plans this fall, for instance? Can, can we go on that vacation? What, what will the rules be for kids in school? Should we, should we buy the new car or the new house, or should we wait until the prices come down because of the ridiculous inflation right now? All critical questions for us, but this morning, I want us to back up even further or maybe, maybe go to an even higher perspective and ask that question from, from a grander place, from, from a bigger place. If we do, I, I think we run into questions that are even more important and that have uh, implications for us down here as well. So, the bigger question is, what is God doing in and through this time? Through COVID-19. What is his message to uh, our, our country, to us, um, what is God saying? What is his message? Um, we're, we're this morning, we're uh, in the part of Judah's history. It's, the, it's the, at the tail end of her history, and we've been working our way through this set of kings in, uh, in 2 Kings, and uh, we're around, oh, 600 B.C. We're, we're at the turn of a century and it's going from the 6th to the 7th century B.C. And this morning, we're looking at the section of 2 Kings when it summarizes the reign of King Jehoiakim. And we're going to be reading this morning from the end of chapter 23 of 2 Kings through the beginning of chapter 24, 2 Kings 23, 36 through 2 Kings 24, 6. And if you would, let's go old school and uh, stand out of reverence 
So, uh, Jehoiakim, this guy, was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 11 years. His mother's name was Zabida. She was the daughter of Padiah. She was from Rumah. Jehoiakim did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's the summary statement. He did just as the kings who had ruled before him had done. Now, during Jehoiakim's uh, rule, Nebuchadnezzar marched into the land and attacked it. He was the king of Babylon. He became Jehoiakim's master for three years, but uh, then Jehoiakim decided he didn't want to remain under Nebuchadnezzar's control. So the Lord sent robbers against Jehoiakim from Babylon, Aram, Moab, and Ammon. I'm going to read that sentence again. The Lord sent robbers or raiders against Jehoiakim from Babylon, Aram, Moab, and Ammon. He sent them to destroy Judah. That's what the Lord said would happen. He had spoken that message through his servants, the prophets. These things happened to Judah in keeping with what the Lord had commanded. He brought enemies against his people in order to remove them from his land. He removed them because of all the sins Manasseh had committed. Manasseh had spilled the blood of many people who weren't guilty of doing anything wrong. In fact, he spilled so much of their blood that he filled Jerusalem with it, so the Lord refused to forgive him. The other events of the rule of Jehoiakim are written down. Everything he did is written in the official records of the kings of Judah. Jehoiakim joined the members of his family who had already died. Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiakim, became the next king after him. You may be seated. So uh, this is the point in history when um, Babylon has taken over from Assyria. And Babylon is now the ascendant superpower in the world. And she has expanded the, the work that Assyria began and has expanded the territory over which she rules. And the king in Babylon is the great king Nebuchadnezzar. And the preeminent prophet in Judah at this time is the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is having a tough time of it. Uh, Jeremiah is preaching God's word and telling the people to turn, and they aren't listening. And he's going to local people, he's going to priests, and he's going to the king, and no one is listening. He's telling them that they need to, to turn. They need to dedicate their hearts to God, but they aren't listening. And out of this final part of Judah's history, I, I believe God has three important principles for us to remember this morning. So principle number one, God is sovereign over the nations and over our lives. He says in verse 2 of chapter 24, did you get it? The Lord brought robbers or raiders against Jehoiakim. The Lord brought them. And then in verse 3, these things happened to Judah in keeping with what the Lord had commanded. He brought enemies against his people. God is sovereign over the nations. What you see happening around you is always God's doing. And this isn't an isolated incident here in 2 Kings, by the way. This principle is true for all times and all places. If you were here a few weeks ago, you may remember that we talked one Sunday about Sennacherib's siege against Jerusalem during the kingship of Hezekiah. And, and during that, uh, um, Sennacherib, uh, during that dramatic time against Sennacherib, Isaiah spit out a rap. 
It's recorded in chapter 19 of 2 Kings. But it wasn't against Judah. Again, it was against King Sennacherib, the most important and powerful man in the world. Isaiah said this to Sennacherib. Haven't you heard? Long ago I ordained it. In the days of old I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass. That you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. In other words, you didn't do this, I did. Your power and your accomplishments are by my plan and design. And then Isaiah goes on. But I know where you stay and when you come and go and how you rage against me because you rage against me and your insolence has reached my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will make you return the way you came. God was sovereign over the activity of Judah. He was sovereign over the activity of Syria. He was sovereign over the activity of Babylon. And he's sovereign over all the nations of the world still. Proverbs 21.1 puts it like this. The Lord, the king's heart, the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. God is sovereign over the nations, including our nation. He does what pleases him. This is why the prophets kept warning the people of God, hey, you're not in charge of what's happening here. God is. And, and the same is true for our lives. God spoke through Isaiah the prophet in chapter 45, verse 7. This isn't on your screen, but listen. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Paul reminded us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, again, not on the screen, that God, quote, works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will end quote. We could quote stories and verses like this all morning. God is sovereign over the nations and over our lives, and this means we need a rhythm of surrender in our lives. We need a faithful, disciplined rhythm of surrender. Surrendering to to God must be our mindset. Surrendering to God must be the constant governor over our activities. It must be the way we organize our thinking. I want you to know for, I don't know, over 30 years, almost every morning at some point I wake up in the shower or in the car on the way to Gateway or on the way to breakfast with somebody, almost every morning I will say, God, I pray that my agenda today would be your agenda for me. And many weeks, I'll end our staff meeting here at Gateway like that. God, I pray that our agenda today would be your agenda for us, a rhythm of surrender. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. So he begins with this giant act of praise. And then his first petition is, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven, perfectly so. In my life, through my day, the rhythm of surrender. This is why Jeremiah, early in his ministry, chapter 4, verse 4, he called on God's people, beautiful image, he called on God's people to circumcise their hearts. In other words, to turn their heart completely over to God, to dedicate their heart fully to God. Uh, There's a translation of the Bible. I don't know if you've heard of this, but it's written for uh, supposedly third grade reading level. It's called the New Living Translation. And I want you to hear how they translate that that verse. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 4 of uh, Jeremiah and the New Living Translation says, O people of Jerusalem and Judah, surrender your pride and your power. Change your hearts 
before the Lord, or my anger will burn like an unquenchable fire because of all your sins. God is sovereign over all the nations of the world and over our lives, and that means we need a rhythm of surrender. So what does a rhythm of surrender look like for you? The second principle that spills out of this period of history for us is that God's preeminent concern for our lives is holiness. God's preeminent concern for our lives is our holiness. I wanted you to think about that as the backdrop against what your typical concerns are, are, are or what mine are. God's preeminent concern for us is our holiness. He's not principally concerned with our happiness. He's not principally concerned with our effectiveness. God's preeminent concern for our lives is holiness. Now, holiness means, first of all, uniqueness, a, a set-apartness. We are set apart by God for God. Secondly, holiness means moral purity, righteousness, faithfulness. This is God's preeminent concern for us, that moral purity, faithfulness. This is why the author of the New Testament book of Hebrews says, chapter 12, verse 14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. God will even allow his own reputation to be sullied in order to fight for our holiness. I want you to listen to uh, verse 3 of chapter 24 in 2 Kings again. Listen to this. These things happened to Judah in keeping with what the Lord had commanded. He brought enemies against his people in order to remove them from his land. He removed them because of all the sins Manasseh had committed. So look, get this. This was a day and age when every nation had its own God. Sometimes every city had its own God. And the Old Testament idea that Yahweh is the God of the whole earth, that, that was unthinkable to the ancient world. And, and so wars were often seen as a contest of the gods. We, we win if our God is greater than your God. That means at the end of Judah's history here, God allowed his people to be decimated and his land to be desecrated. In fact, he planned it. He brought it about to utterly rebuke his people. He was willing to damage his own reputation in order to punish his people for their waywardness and draw them back because his preeminent concern was for their holiness. He cared more about their holiness than he cared about his own reputation. Then later in the story, we find out that he restored them in part and that this whole period was intended as an act of discipline. He was training his people in holiness. This is his point. And it should be our point as well. And that means faithfulness should be the focus of our lives. The, the, the driving question for our activity should be, have I been faithful? That's what we need to ask as we look back over the years of our lives and as we look forward to the years of our lives, as we look back over this week and as we look forward to next week, as we look back over this last year and a half and as we look forward to this next fall, have I been faithful? This week I, I watched a short uh, video by a, a guy named Parker Palmer and he's the director of the Center for Courage and Renewal. I don't know what that is, but uh, he made the point that our culture is dominated by the, the idea of effectiveness, that is, outcomes and results. This is what we aim for, 
This is, this is what we write our books about and read books about. This, this is the topic of our seminars. This is why we hire consultants, to help us be more effective. Parker said this. I like this. We cannot let ourselves settle for mere effectiveness as the ultimate measure of our failure or success. Yes, we want to be effective in the pursuit of important goals, but when measurable short-term outcomes become the only or primary standard for assessing our efforts, we take on smaller and smaller tasks, the only kind that yield instantly visible results, and we abandon the large, impossible, but vital jobs we are really here to do. These jobs are what make our lives worth living. We must judge ourselves, he says, by a higher standard than effectiveness. The standard is called faithfulness, end quote. If you were here last week, uh, you might remember this slide. Might bring up the next slide. We said last week that God has a way and that we were designed to live by that way. Well, look, faithful living is God's way. Faithful living is what holiness looks like in our everyday activity. Faithful to God's commands, faithful to God's calling on our lives, faithful to God's gifts. And, and this isn't just an Old Testament idea. Uh, uh, Jesus put it like this in John 14. If you love me, obey my commands. Later on, he says, anyone who has my commands and obeys them loves me. Have we been faithful? That, that's our driving question. Um, some of you know uh, Ina York. Uh, Ina was a school teacher in Rhode Island a number of years ago. In fact, she was a very good, highly respected school teacher. Several years ago, she had a friend invite her on a short-term mission trip to the Dominican Republic. And while she was there, uh, the mission group that she was with visited a very poor village up in the hills outside of Santo Domingo. Ina felt God tell her, that he wanted her to invest her life with those villagers. In that case, what would faithfulness look like for Ina? Well, for Ina, it meant selling everything she had, everything she owned, and moving to the Dominican Republic. It meant leaving a rich, rewarding life and moving to the DR. It meant learning to love a group of people in the hills of the DR outside of Santo Domingo. It meant learning their language. Ina has brought wells and medical clinics and school opportunities to these villagers, just to mention a few things. She's seen dozens of children and youth and women profess faith in Christ, and she's opened that village up to dozens of visiting teams who have loved them and served them with Ina and been powerfully blessed in return. Gateway has been uh, a part of that. We, we have supported Ina's ministry for more than 10 years, and we've, we've sent several teams to serve with her there. Some of you know uh, Gary Schneider. We had the privilege about, I don't know, many years ago of uh, being one of the first churches to host an Orphan Sunday. Orphan Sunday now is international. 
with hundreds of churches around the world celebrating an Orphan Sunday every October, and it has facilitated the adoption of hundreds of orphans to families throughout the world. Every Orphan's Hope has done much more than release an adoption movement through Orphan Sunday. They've built homes for orphans and homes for mothers who have lost their children to AIDS. Uh, they've helped educate and disciple hundreds of children in Zambia. And Gary? Gary worked in IT. He lived in Percival. He was on a plane one time and read an article about the orphan crisis in Zambia, and he felt God so powerfully. He felt God wanted him to do something, so he did. That's what faithfulness looked like for Gary. You don't have to go to the Dominican Republic or Zambia. There are families in our church who have adopted children at great personal expense. There's a person in our church who, who visits the Loudoun Detention Center twice a month just to hang out with kids, to offer a Bible study, and to offer help. He told me that whenever he goes there, listen to this, that's one of the few times I'm sure I'm doing what God, I'm doing something God-honoring. That's one of the few times he's sure he's being faithful. There are people in our church who have started Bible studies at their workplaces. There are people who have let others live with them at no cost. There are people who have given ridiculous amounts of money to Gateway or causes that they believe in. We could tell stories like this all morning, I think. Some of you have a story of incredible faithfulness. And for those of us who have turned the governorship of our lives over to Christ, that's the focus. Have we been faithful? That's the question that dominates our thinking, and that's it. Not have we been successful. That's, that's not the driving question for us. That question leads to a hurried, busy life. A worried life. Not have we been effective. That question leads to small lives. God's preeminent concern for our life is holiness. So have we been faithful? Have we done this year what God was stirring us to do? Have we lived out the purpose of his activity? Because what's going on around us is God's doing. Third principle that spills out of this point in Judah's history. Power and luxury are usually not good for the soul. Power and luxury are usually not good for the soul. Hey, fellow suburbanites, we need to hear this one because for many of us, underneath it all, this is one of the drives for us to find a life that's more comfortable. Let's leave the Second Kings account for a second and, and let's go to Jeremiah chapter 22 because Jeremiah 22 is Jeremiah's charge against Jehoiakim. And I want us to especially train our ears to um, verse 21 in this passage because, I, you know, I think he's speaking to us. So we're going to go to Jeremiah 22 this morning and I'm going to ask if you would, let's, uh, let's do it again, spiritual aerobics, let's stand out of reverence for God's word. Jeremiah 22, and I'll begin reading in verse 13. Uh, the Lord says, 
how terrible it will be for King Jehoiakim. He builds his palace by mistreating people. He builds his upstairs rooms with money gained by sinning. He makes his own people work for nothing. He doesn't pay them for what they do. He says, I will build myself a great palace. It will have large rooms upstairs, so he makes big windows in it. He covers its walls with cedar boards. He decorates it with red paint. Jehoiakim, does, does having more and more cedar boards make you a king? Your father Josiah had enough to eat and drink. He did what was right and fair, so everything went well for him. He stood up for those who were poor or needy, so everything went well with him. This is what it means to know me, announces the Lord. That's what it means to know me. Jehoiakim, the only thing on your mind is to get rich by cheating others. You would even kill people who are not guilty of doing anything wrong. You would mistreat them. You would take everything they own. So the Lord speaks about King Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. He says, his people won't mourn for him. They will not say, my poor brother, my poor sister. This won't be normal lamenting when Jehoiakim goes. They will not mourn for him. They won't say, my poor master, how sad that his glory is gone. In fact, he will be buried like a donkey. His, his body will be dragged away and thrown outside the gates of Jerusalem. The Lord says, people of Jerusalem, uh, go up to Lebanon, cry out for help. Go, go spread this news far and wide. Go to all your allies. They don't exist anymore, by the way. And just let it be known. Let your voice be heard in the land of Bashan. Cry out from the mountains of Abraham. All those who are going to help you are crushed. Verse 21. When you felt secure, I warned you. But you said, I won't listen. You've acted like that ever since you were young. You have not obeyed me. So the wind will drive away all your shepherds, all those who are going to help you will be carried off as prisoners, then you will be dishonored and put to shame. That will happen because you have been so sinful. Some of you live in Jerusalem in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. You're comfortable in your cedar buildings. He's talking to Jehoiakim here. But you will groan when pain comes on you. It will be like the pain of a woman having a baby. You may be seated. Power and luxury are usually not good for the soul. Uh, John Wesley was the British evangelist who, whose preaching literally changed the face of Britain, especially the poorer communities. As Wesley's hearers came to accept Christ, they radically changed their habits of living. They, they quit going to bars. They started spending time with their families. In many cases, they even started saving money. And over the course of one generation, the British middle class was built. More than one historian has attributed this titanic cultural shift to Wesley's influence. I think Wesley would have attributed it to Christ's influence. But at the end of his life, Wesley made this startling observation. He said that Christian revival, and that was his word for dramatic change at a cultural level and, and things begin to shift. He said Christian revival carries within itself the seeds of its own undoing. What he meant is that when people give their lives to God, they begin to live God's way. They begin to live faithfully. And their lives take an upturn. 
And as that happens, they begin to experience over time prosperity. And as that happens, they forget that they need God. And they slowly turn away. Why is luxury usually a problem for the soul? I mean, honestly, the Bible doesn't really answer that. It, it doesn't tell us clearly why, but it does tell us that it often is a significant problem. A little sampling from Paul. 1 Timothy 6.10, Paul says, Love for money causes all kinds of evil. Some people want to get rich. They've wandered away from the faith. They have wounded themselves with many sorrows. Jesus put it this way, Matthew 6, 24. He said, no one can serve two masters at the same time. He talks about the pursuit of money as a master. You will hate one of them and love the other, or you'll be faithful to one and dislike the other. You can't serve God and money at the same time. Did you notice in that, that little word faithful? Faithfulness is required one way or the other. You're going to be faithful to some vision. What vision is it? How about power? Well, Jesus makes it equally clear that exercising power is not even how we were designed to think. That's, being in a position of power is not how we negotiate relationships. That's not what we do. That's not the aim. Matthew 23, 11, Jesus said this, the greatest among you will be your servant. And then in Luke chapter 22, he was giving the disciples a lesson on leadership. Listen to how he says this. The kings of the Gentiles hold power over their people. And those who order them around call themselves protectors. But you mustn't be like that. Instead, the most important among you should be like the youngest. The one who rules should be like the one who serves. Power and luxury are not good for the soul. When we, when we have them, we lose our sensitivity to God's voice. We don't recognize our need for him. The wrong questions begin to dominate our thinking. The wrong questions begin to dominate our thinking. We begin to think about comfort. We begin to think about effectiveness. We begin to think about success. And since power and luxury are not good for the soul, I think the application point is, what if? Let's go back to our original question. What if COVID-19 is from God? What if he arranged all of this? What might that mean for us? For our families? What might that mean for America? In fact, what if God has been steadily trying to get our attention exactly the way he did during this period of Judah's history? Steadily offering us turning points. Think of 9-11. Think of the financial crisis. And then a global pandemic. So did he get our attention? How have we spent our time? Where have we invested our energy this past year, for instance? Has this been a turning point for us? Have we stepped up our faithfulness game? Have we leaned more intensely and more consistently into God? I think some of you have. I, I don't know about you, but for me, if I'm honest, I think my spiritual discipline has actually lessened over the last year. I spent a little bit of time sitting on the couch, 
just in response to, you know, what in the world is going on, and I don't think I got up. What if I've completely missed it? What if the answer to our concerns and our worries has nothing to do with the change in our circumstances? What if the answer to our concerns has nothing to do with politics? What does faithfulness look like for me, for us, this fall? What does it look like in my relationship with my family? What does it look like in my relationship to church, to work, to my spiritual life, to my connection with God? What would it look like for me to devote myself more fully to following God's way? What if, what if that's the only question that I should be worried about? What if that's the only thing that, that really should be dominating my plans? We've heard what faithfulness looked like for Ina and for Gary. What does it look like for you and me? Is there something that God has laid on your life that you've never stepped into? Or maybe you've been so busy, you, you don't even know what God has asked of you. What if the point of this next year is discovering the ministry that God has for you and then stepping into it? Uh, we know what it looked like for Ina. We know what it looked like for Gary. Um, and we know what it looked like for Jesus. For Jesus, faithfulness meant giving his life, his, his, his blood, his life for us so that we might have a connection with God. Mm -hmm.